Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. Hope you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. There's a lot to unpack on this show, so let's get right at it. Later on, Noah Daniel stops by. Noah is a classroom teacher, a consultant, podcaster, and keynote speaker, and now writer. Her third children's book, Strum and the Wild Turkeys, is a book about finding your voice through a sense of belonging and the transformational power of music and Get this, it was inspired by a true story. We'll hear all that from Noah later on in the show. First up is Louise Johnson, a writer whose work has been published in the Globe and Mail, the Huffington Post, Darling Magazine, and many more. Her debut book, Behind the Red Door, How Elizabeth Arden's Legacy Inspired My Coming of Age in the Beauty Industry, is equal parts educational biography of a woman whose name we know, Elizabeth Arden, but whose biography has been largely lost to time. It's also part memoir. Louise says, it is a book for any woman looking to reconnect with her most authentic self and create a successful, fulfilled, beautiful life on her own terms. Louise joined me via Zoom from Quebec. Tell me who Florence Nightingale Graham is, her importance to the world, and more specifically, her importance to your life. Yes, absolutely. Well, that Behind the Red Door is about Florence Nightingale Graham, which probably no one has heard of that name before, but most people have heard of Elizabeth Arden, and that is her alter ego. And basically how she came into my life in 2008, I moved to New York from Toronto to start interning at Elizabeth Arden. And the more I uncovered about the woman behind the company, who was Florence Nightingale Graham, I couldn't believe how few knew her story. Mm -hmm. She's a Canadian born woman from outside of Toronto, moved to New York exactly 100 years before I did in 1908, changed her name, assumed this alter ego of Elizabeth Arden, and went on to pioneer the modern beauty industry as we know it today. So when I started working for her company, I wasn't so much interested in the beauty industry part of it, but about this incredible woman who no one knew about. And men of her era, like Rockefeller, Henry Ford, Vanderbilt, J.P. Morgan. They have monuments, universities, so many public records about them. And I couldn't believe it. Was it because she was a woman? Was it because she was Canadian? How did this story of this woman who was the wealthiest woman in the world for three decades, who was the first woman on the cover of Time magazine and the first woman inducted into the U.S. Hall of Fame, even though she's Canadian, where, where are the public records about her? And all I could find was a dual biography. And it was mostly just pitting Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein against each other. It wasn't as much about her accolades. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of how I got introduced to her was by working at her company and scouring old New York Times articles. I got an out of print version of a 1970s book about her early life in Canada, but it was very sparse and it was hard to put it all together. But she kind of became my invisible guide as I started navigating New York, eventually Europe. I moved to Europe to work for Elizabeth Arden as well. She lived there a hundred years before I did. And just kind of coming of age in this beauty industry, the early, social media was becoming a thing. And the idea of who are we behind the makeup we put on our faces, behind the social media filters? 
and behind the personas that we were starting to both present to the world to be accepted as successful. And yeah, that's really how it all started. And the book flourished from there. Well, and the book isn't strictly about Elizabeth Arden. This is part history book or part biography, I guess. And then it's Correct. part memoir, uh, memoir as well. You, as you've said a couple of times, are exactly 100 years after Elizabeth Arden moved to New York and then Europe. So there's parallels, I guess, that you are able to draw from your own experience uh, in the experience of Elizabeth Arden. So tell us a little bit about that and and when those started to become clear to you. Exactly. That's a great question. So yes, it is a biography meets memoir, so to speak. And the book jumps timelines 100 years. And the reason that I am in the book, many times I wanted to extract myself because writing about yourself in a book is not that fun all of the time. Mm -hmm. But really, I'm there to highlight her story and how much or how little has changed a century later for women in the workplace, in the beauty industry, and just as we navigate the world. And the synchronicities or the coincidences between us started slowly just, oh, she moved in 1908 and I moved in 2008. Oh, she's from outside of Toronto. I'm from outside of Toronto. And even, and then it became a little bit less surface level and a little bit deeper of our values of maybe our feminist values of how we see the world, how we perceive success, and eventually how success, we looked successful from the outside, but really to both of us on the inside, we had a different feeling of what that felt like. And you can juxtapose that with the beauty industry of we all have this facade and what people perceive everything to look like from the exterior, but really it's learning to navigate the world to find that internal feeling of what success feels like, not just what it looks like. Well, I think that's very true of social media as well. People curate their Instagram feeds to uh, make it look like we're sitting by the pool and everything is great. And look at my fabulous life. Meanwhile, you know, you're worrying about how to pay the bills. And so uh, let's talk about that a little bit then. This feeling, is it imposter syndrome? Did you feel that? Was it, what was it exactly that, that led you to having this seemingly glamorous life living in Europe, in New York, working in the beauty industry, and yet not feeling successful? Absolutely. That's also a very great question. It's, it is exactly what you said, taking social media as the example, this highlight reel where all you put out to the world are the beautiful, shiny, glossy parts of your life. And eventually you start to almost be, be more attached to that version of yourself and you lose who you truly are behind that. And for me, it started, I didn't even have Instagram initially. It started with a blog. It was Manhattan Maven. So that was my alter ego in New York. And I blogged daily. I posted about my celebrity encounters, all of the glitzy Vogue events I was going to, rubbing elbows with Anna Wintour and Taylor Swift. And people loved that version of myself. So I am a people pleaser. I started trying to become that version, but I was losing bits of my true self along the way. I've always loved to write. I stopped freelance writing because I was trying to follow this path of what other people thought 
was a dream and it really was a dream job in a dream city it just wasn't my dream you're listening to my interview with behind the red door how elizabeth arden's legacy inspired my coming of age in the beauty industry author louise johnson available now wherever fine books are sold and how does that happen you know, how do you fall into something that's very seductive? I mean, the idea of moving to New York and working for this big company, and it's very seductive. And it, I, I guess that's it. The idea that, you know, I get to rub shoulders with with uh, uh, Anna Wintour, and you get sucked into it. And it probably yeah. happens slowly, and you don't even really realize that you're changing your, your fundamental uh, uh, principles until it's too late. Yeah, I love that word seductive. It really is a romanticism. And I think it starts from movies and books and TV. And it's also really, I think the biggest thing is the external validation. I was getting this external praise and validation for those accolades and not for the things that really drove me and I really wanted to do. And I really struggled with what what is success and is it what other people perceive as success or is it what I perceive as being successful? And it, it took a long time to untangle those personas because eventually the facade fused on, to, on top of who yeah. I really was in my course. Tell me a little bit about what has changed in the beauty industry and maybe what hasn't changed in the beauty industry in that hundred years between Elizabeth Arden moving to New York and you moving to New York. Yeah. So a lot has changed really now. I think people see the beauty industry, especially with social media, the Kardashians, there's something called Instagram face where everybody wants those fake lips, yeah. the injections, and I'm, there's nothing wrong with that. Whatever you want to do to yourself, it's fine. But really it has taken more of a negative connotation, this whole idea of impossible beauty standards. And a hundred years ago, before it even started, the word, Makeup was synonymous with the word whore in mm. the dictionary. Uh, wearing makeup, wearing red lipstick was a sinful marking of ladies of the night, prostitutes. And that was really dictated by the male gaze. Men didn't want women trying to seduce other men. So makeup was very taboo. And really the beauty industry was born in this underground culture. And Elizabeth Arden brought it to the forefront brought it into the commercial arena where women were making their own elixirs with the ash from the fireplace, putting it on their eyebrows and eyelashes. They're using berries to tint their cheeks. And eventually it evolved into this idea, we call it self-care now. And it was started with the idea of women reclaiming time for themselves, taking time to make themselves feel good from the inside and feeling confident for themselves, not for the male gaze. It's really about pampering, pampering yourself, relaxing, because women were there to fulfill their husband's needs and their children's needs. They were not supposed to take any time for themselves. And Elizabeth Arden started the beauty industry, really it was started with skincare, just taking time to moisturize your skin, in the morning before you face the day. And it was about putting on your armor before you face that barrage of demands and from everyone else. The history of red lipstick 
is fascinating to me. Yes. Uh, and you touched on it a little bit there, but Elizabeth Arden gave tubes of red lipstick to the suffragettes who were protesting, trying to get votes. Uh, Kamala Harris wears red lipstick when she, as she says, I think she says something like, when I'm about to do battle, I go in wearing red lipstick because yes. it, it makes a, a, a statement. And I, I guess it is about, <clears throat> as you say, who are you wearing it for? What purpose are you wearing it for? Uh, mm -hmm. But the idea of giving red lipstick to these suffragettes and saying, this is, this is now your, your armor uh, is kind of great. Exactly. It's your war paint. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth, that's true. She handed out along Fifth Avenue. It was the women's suffrage march for their right to vote. They were all a sea of women in white outfits, banners, votes for women. And Elizabeth and her team handed out tubes of red lipstick. So all of these women had the same uniform war paint. Right. And it really red is such a powerful, fierce color. And it, symbol, it was a feminist symbol, a visible, tangible symbol to everyone that, look, we are speaking up, we are voicing our opinions. And at that time, really, red lipstick was extremely taboo. Men hated to see it on women. So it was kind of like a view to the patriarchy, really. Let's jump ahead a little bit into now uh, internet culture social media culture. We've touched on a little bit here, but uh, in the notes that came with the book, you talk about uh, lean in culture. You talk about hashtag girl boss, uh, the 24 seven hustle and grind. And what's that done to uh, a generation of bright, ambitious and accomplished young women and why it's time for a systematic change in order for women to truly have it all. A couple of questions there. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what, that I know what lean-in culture is. So if you could explain that to me, and then we'll move on from there. Yeah, lean-in culture, really it started with a book by Sheryl Sandberg, who wrote the book Lean In. I don't know if you remember that. But that was the first book. I read it when I was in my early 20s, while I was climbing the corporate ladder. And that was the kind of anthem for women of, you have to lean into your career and find a way to also basically to do it all at home and do it all at work. And those were the messages I was getting as a young girl. But in the workplace, I was seeing women taking a six week maternity leave and coming back after three weeks because they were terrified their short term replacement would become their long term replacement. I saw women breastfeeding in janitor closets at work because there were no lactation rooms. Basically, it was very confusing messaging for me at an early age, this lean-in culture, lean into every aspect of business and work and home and do it all perfectly and beautifully. And I just was like, how, how are we doing this? How do you do it all? And the hustle and grind culture, I just think, is a little bit dangerous. It's a dangerous message for women because now we're experiencing this really a pandemic to not use that word, but of burnout, of really a lack of clarity of how can women manage all of these expectations. And what is the systemic change that needs to happen then, do you think? Yeah, so basically you can, you have to start from the ground up. You can't, it, 
these systems and the corporate culture, it was majority of women working at Elizabeth Arden in the beauty industry when I worked there, but it was a system and a company built by men for men. So things just on the fundamental level, even something as simple as a lactation room in every office. So women aren't feeling this or understanding that women who have their periods, maybe it's worse for a certain set of women and they can't come to work. They're actually sick having period days or childcare on site, really fundamentally making sure that the system works, not just for the male cycle, the male hormone, hormonal level, how they operate on a nine to five schedule. Women hormonally actually work on a 24 day, 28 day cycle. So just kind of really examining, does this system fundamentally work for women? Or are we trying to fit ourselves into a mold that was not built for us? You're listening to my interview with Louise Johnson, author of Behind the Red Door, How Elizabeth Arden's Legacy Inspired My Coming of Age in the Beauty Industry. Available now wherever you buy fine books. When you write a memoir, and you were talking earlier about how you find it difficult sometimes to write about yourself, I think the reason that you find it difficult to write about yourself, I certainly have, and the odd time that I've inserted myself into a story, is because you're forced to reveal things, you're forced to think about things in a different way, your writer brain kicks in and you start asking questions that maybe your human brain doesn't ask you about yourself. Yes. It's almost like you're interviewing yourself and asking the tough questions that might go unasked uh, otherwise. So tell me a little bit, perhaps, uh, about what you learned about yourself while you were writing this that maybe surprised you. Mm -hmm. It was a very cathartic process writing about myself. And the first book was over 100. The first version was over 100,000 words because I just had to. Which is long. I, if people don't know, that that's a long book. That's a. That's a too long. Yeah, that's a 400 page book. That's war, that's war and peace style uh, writing right there. Exactly. And you don't need that much self revelation. <laughs> but I needed to do that in order to cut down the fat and get to the heart of what I was really trying to say. And it really is a very vulnerable feeling. You have to examine all of your flaws. Otherwise, it's not a very exciting or interesting character if I was just a shiny, perfect version. And that was the biggest revelation I think for me is really examining the identity that I portray to the world online, on my blog, and really examining what makes me happy on an internal level. And it, it was interesting that it wasn't exactly what other people might have thought. And choosing to leave a career really in a dream city and a dream job to become what people associate as a struggling writer yeah. is a bit of a crazy decision because financially it does not look like a very attractive alternative. It's a lot harder road to go about, but I had to get very clear on what does success look like for me? And that was eye opening because my version of success when I was 18, 20 drastically changed a decade later. And I think that's okay. Is that the advice that you would give to girls and young women who may be wanting to pick up uh, behind the red door and and take something away from it? It's a it's a lively read, but there has to be a, a message at the end of it for them. Is that it? Absolutely, yes. On the surface level, I want people 
to kind of have this indulgent read, get a glimpse into old world glamour of the 1930s New York, 1940s Paris, Europe. I want that delicious escapism for people on the surface, kind of going behind the red doors of Arden and showing you what it was like to work in the beauty industry. But on a deeper level, I really want people to take the larger theme away from this and to look at what kind of persona or what facade are you presenting to the world, whether consciously or subconsciously, have a bit of reflection and self-introspection. And maybe you'll find out that who you present is exactly who you are. And that's great. But especially for young girls, as you're coming of age and trying to figure out how to navigate the world, really be true to yourself. And I want you to discover who your authentic self is and what success looks and feels like for you. That was my interview with Louise Johnson. Her book, Behind the Red Door, How Elizabeth Arden's Legacy Inspired My Coming of Age in the Beauty Industry is available wherever you buy fine books. My guest in this segment is Noah Daniels. She is a classroom teacher, a consultant, a podcaster, a keynote speaker, and writer. Today, we're talking about her third children's book. It's called Strum and the Wild Turkeys, and it's a cool book for kids about finding your voice through a sense of belonging and the transformational power of music. And get this, it was inspired by a true story. That's where we start with Noah Daniels. Tell me what happened on Avi and Barry Glina's ranch that inspired <laughs> this book. So Avi and Barry Glina are people that I've known my whole life or their whole life because I'm a little bit older. And they have this ranch and they had a peacock that disappeared. And they were like, okay, the peacock got out of its enclosure, really weird, looked for it for a while and kind of gave up. And a year later on their trail cams, here appears this peacock and the picture's fantastic. He sent me the video to start and you see this peacock's head peek up and then you see what appears to be like 20 wild turkeys and the peacock is the leader. So he's like, Noah, there's a story here. And I said to him, okay, that's amazing, um, but I'm writing a TED talk. So I can't even think about it right now. And then they postponed my TED talk. It was supposed to be in September and then they postponed it till February. And I was I don't know if you've ever prepared for something like that. I know you do amazing things all the time and you're kind of an icon in this country. So you know what I'm talking about, that when you're in the zone, you're in the zone. And so this diversion was really important to me because I needed to channel this energy somewhere. So I was like, okay, I'm going to work on this story. And I started doing research about the commonalities between peacocks and turkeys, like trying to find a thread. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden music. And I couldn't, I couldn't even believe it. I mean, I knew turkeys gobbled, but that's about all I knew. And then the rest kind of unfolded from there. All right. Well, explain to me the connection then between peacocks and turkeys and how music bridges that gap. So um, peacocks make a sound by shaking their tail feathers. And it's actually really important to their survival, to their mating and all these other things. And these beautiful, ornate feathers that they have are also essential to that story. And then I started to research turkeys and it turns out that turkeys make distinct sounds, not just gobble, but cut, kiki and yelp. And I'm like, oh, those are my characters. And as soon as I started to think through the sounds, I started to see them in my head. And then I always kind of start with alliteration because it's like my own thing. I don't know why. So he was Pete the peacock for a while. And then as I was explaining the conflict that I had come up with, 
about him having an imperfect plume and what his challenge was going to be as a result, I said that he strummed his plume like a guitar. And as I said the word strum, I like pulled over at the side of the road and the whole rest of the story came to me. It was really amazing. I love that when you have that blast, that, that like a lightning bolt and all you have to do is write it down. It's all yeah. there in your head and all you have to do is get it to the page. That's an amazing moment. You're listening to my interview with Noah Daniels, author of Strum and the Wild Turkey, a book for kids now available wherever you buy fine books. Uh, describe what that was like. Describe the moment where you realized you put your finger on it. Well, imagine that I have this grand privilege that I'm about to do a TED Talk about my podcast, which comes from a project from my classroom. And it's all about music and it's mm -hmm. using music as a conduit to tell your story, nostalgic identity and pick me up. So music is always on my mind. And it's something that I've seen as one of the most powerful conduits to human beings and not just as a way in and a way out of people, but as a language unto itself. So when I found that music connection and I was able to see the story unfold, I got to envision the band and I got to envision the paraphernalia and I got to envision who each of them were and kind of write their backstories in my mind because they don't get revealed in the story. And one of the cool things about doing this from a real life event and all the, all the, you know, when you find your band, like that's one of the messages of the book, but it's also what happened with the book. So Avi and Barry um, and Stacy came onto this project and she's this amazing person. She's an educational consultant, but she came on originally because people were talking about doing this as a production and not a book. But I, I wrote the book and then Stacy and I actually went up to the ranch and I drove an ATV and imagined a thousand stories in this space. And I couldn't even believe, like, uh, first of all, I'm pretty great on an ATV, it turns out, but <laughs> I, was, I was inspired everywhere I looked. So I'm in this physical surrounding, imagining different dilemmas and how these characters were going to be and where they were going to play. Because in my mind, it culminates in a concert every single time. So I had that musical piece and I had that nature piece and I had that, you know, BU vibe that is so essential, especially now. And this was like, we, it was still COVID. So, you know, we drove up in masks and things like that. And that was last summer. And then when we had Alana on the team, she's the most brilliant illustrator. And what she did to bring these characters to life was just, it created something better than the sum of its parts because I worked with her for so long mm -hmm. and I got to actually collaborate with her, which not everybody gets as a privilege when you're writing a book. And I have two other children's books published under my maiden name. And this was, this was like a remedy for all of that distance I never got to connect through. So I would say, this is him. And, and she's like, well, tell me more about him. So I wrote the backstory for her. And then she said, well, what about Pinterest? Can you make me a Pinterest board? And I'm like, I'm not really a Pinterest person, but I can make you a collage on slides. So I made a collage and I gave her like Finn Wolfhard and Timothy Chalamet as Strum. And I tried to explain them. It's like, you know, you see the transformation in who they are and these characters that they play, these two actors, you always kind of see their whole body emanates how they feel. So I really wanted her to channel that. And she's like, oh my gosh, do that for everybody. So I got to do that for every character and I got to deliberate on every nuance and every color and she just, she was so amazingly collaborative with me. And then she came up to the ranch and that was like the most amazing thing. Cause she drew the ranch mm. as a cartoon essentially, or as an illustration. And then we talked about how it needed to look and where it was going to be in the book. And I wanted her to channel like poo corners, but 
only highlight the part of the book where the story was, because in my imagination, there are so many stories that are coming from these physical places that actually exist. So it was just a beautiful collaboration. And I found my band there and, and Strom finds his band. So it's a nice story. And I'm excited to get it into kids' hands, especially now. Like I wrote, I'm, you know, as a teacher, I love, love what I do. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the How to Use This Book, which will be up on the website. And I wanted people to not only be able to have a catalyst for the classroom, but also a catalyst for at home, because we know that learning doesn't only happen there. So one of the great things that I got to do is I came up with Strum on the Run. And I have like this, this amazing illustration of Strum where kids can take it with them. And if they're feeling lonely and stuck, they can maybe write a song with him or maybe be inspired by him. So I hope that the book is successful, but more because I hope it helps kids be be who they are and feel good and find the people that build them up. Well, I wanted to ask you about your experience as a teacher and how that influenced the book. You may have just answered that, but it, it must have given you a, a, a different- Sorry, one second. My love. I, I absolutely not. Sorry about that. That's okay. So I wanted to ask you about your experience as a teacher because it must have influenced the ideas in the book. Uh, You must have taken that experience as a teacher and allowed it to feed what you feel is a need uh, in children's literature and in children's lives uh, when you were writing this book. How did that, how do the two fit together, the the teaching gig and uh, writing the book? I can't really separate myself from teaching. It's not just like my profession. It's my passion. It's what I do. It's what my podcasts are about. It's what I write about. It's what I love. So I don't know that I purposely infused my teaching lens on what I wrote, but after I did it and I looked at it, I started to see all the layers. I started to see not just the four to six-year-olds that were going to listen to it cuddling up with family members, but in a classroom and what could happen and how this could be a catalyst for inquiry and how it could be something about looking selfward and feeling good and how it could touch on social emotional learning and mental health. And for me, I, I just love, I love the idea that I can make a positive impact. So I guess that that's really just the extension of me as a person. And like my daughters will call me a meacher because I'm a mom and a teacher all the time and I'm like meachering them. So I think that it's really hard to separate myself into compartments because that's just the totality of me. Like I'm a teacher. That's what I am. It's what I love. And this book has ideas about the importance of self-discovery, about learning to create that helps to build uh, the skills and the community and all the things that we need to uh, move forward in life. Uh, So tell me a little bit about making sure that kids you say four to six probably is about the target age for this book. Um, those are kind of heady ideas in a little bit, uh, in, in some ways. Tell me a little bit about creating a book that will infuse those ideas into kids' minds uh, in a way that they'll understand them. Well, I think, again, back to Alana's illustrations, one of the things I recommend is that people do a picture walk. And you can see the transformation in the character just from her incredible illustrations. But like all good things that that are rich texts, there are layers. So there's the most superficial layer of a story where kids go, oh, uh, yay. And then there's the more complex layer of when you tear it apart and you look at all of the aspects that contribute to this beautiful spectrum of possibility that is really in the text. And 
it's hard to talk about it at because it's mine, but it's all of ours. Like, I can't even explain to you how something like this can be so simple, right? And just like saying to a person, well, what's something you love, but to have achieved that understanding or to have built that sense of passion, that takes time and it takes evolution and it takes mistakes and learning and all the beautiful hardships that life can bring. So I hope that on its most superficial level, it resonates with kids because it's cute and meaningful, but like great music, you know, you get to listen to it together. And as a family, when you get to share in an experience like that, that book, like a great song, you can enjoy it for the groove. You can enjoy it for a few cool lines of lyric, but ultimately it's all of it put together that makes it really special. And it's the shared experience that makes it yours. So that's what I'm really hoping translates for people. And it seems to be like, I've been so lucky to get some really positive feedback. Yeah. Now, have you put this in front of kids? I mean, have you read it in front of kids? Have you, did you test run it on the kids in your house? Well, so I have three daughters and they were, they were really great test runs. My eldest was like the critical eye editor and my middle one was, you know, this character is really interesting. Let's talk about them. And my youngest was, I want a stuffed animal of gobble. When can I have stuffed (laughs) animal of gobble? So they all kind of played to type. But because I teach in the virtual school this year and I have a grade eight homeroom, I also teach English language learners. So I'm in multiple classrooms and it's been really great because using the book, I was able to look at different lessons that I could pull from the book that could help meet kids where they are, which is ultimately what any educator does, right? They move them on their own individual continuum. So I have done that. But the other thing I love about Edumatch, who's the publisher, is they ask you to do focus groups. So you send it to people and they give you feedback and it's the kids, right? It's always the kids that tell you the most important thing. They're the ones that will tell you that there's a man behind the curtain and they're the ones that will tell you, wow, this is great. Or this made me wonder that. And that's kind of what has been so cool about being able to be in education at this time. And in, as part of the team, like Barry has young kids and Avi has young kids. So they've played it out with them and the kids really love Strum and they fell in love with him as a character. And I think he's great. Like I, I got the t-shirt, I have the poster. I really like him. And sometimes I forget that I created him because he's so cool. You're listening to my interview with Noah Daniels, author of Strum and the Wild Turkeys, available now wherever you buy fine books. When I was going to school, there was a real emphasis on uh, fitting in. Always, you you uh, you never wanted to be sort of the odd person out. I think that's changing a little bit now because I think that that as an adult, I realize this, and I think more kids are realizing this now that there's more people outside the circle than there are in the circle. And I think that uh, a book like Strum and the Wild Turkeys uh, has that vibe to it. It it says that it's okay to be to walk your own path. A little bit. And I think that that's a very potent lesson for kids. I think that, you know, Brene Brown differentiates fitting in um, and belonging. And mm-hmm. I think that that is ultimately something that, you know, when we talk about Maslow's hierarchy, really belonging is at the very top. That sense of belonging isn't about fitting in and having everybody think you're okay and you pass. It's about actually getting to be yourself yeah. wherever you are, or at least somewhere that you are. And I I think that one of the things that is part of why that's more acceptable today than when we were younger 
is because we understand the, the power of that, but also because schools are places where that happens more often. Like for me, I don't only want to achieve curriculum expectations. I want my students to leave my class knowing themselves a little bit more and having a deeper sense of what they love and what they have to work on. And if you don't give them time to turn selfward, then all they're doing is learning skills in a vacuum. But if you can incorporate who they are and what they love into their learning, then that's what stays with them. And uh, slightly unrelated, but uh, it's still on the theme. Uh, how's the last year been for you? You've been doing virtual classes. Uh, tell me what that's like as a teacher, uh, it, it, how different it is in terms of putting your lesson plans together, uh, the connection uh, are kids crying all the time? Are they paying attention? What's going on? I'm the kind of teacher who can feel when I've lost a student. Mm. So if I'm in a virtual class, I try to gauge them in different. I've learned a lot of tools that I'm going to bring back to the classroom. So I've learned the power of one-on-one -on -one in a new way. Um, and I, I certainly think that understanding your learners couldn't ever be more important than it is now. Mm -hmm. and giving kids opportunities to bring pieces of themselves into, especially a virtual classroom. That's what was so cool about doing the personal playlist project online. I did not think all of my building outside the box projects were going to translate because they're usually in class audience oriented. Right. But what I learned, especially with grade eights, because so many of them are not video on, I learned about voice and I learned about it in, you know, um, figurative ways, as well as in actual ways and understanding how you can have multiple opportunities for kids to express themselves has never been more pertinent than it is right now. And those kids can't be disengaged if they're talking about themselves or if they're going on these inquiries where they're a piece of that equation. Mm -hmm. So it's been tough for a lot of kids and I, I care more about them than I care about work coming in a lot of the time. And so I've, I've really relied on their parents to be bridges sometimes if there is a disconnect, not in a punitive way, but in what am I missing? What do I need to do? How can I connect? But I've been really, really lucky to have a superior group of students who support each other. And we've built a real class culture over this time, but seeing them present all the projects over this time, especially the P3, like what you can learn about a person by asking them to bring the totality of their being into class. And it's only five minutes, but everybody's listening to them and everybody's engaging with them. And it's hours and hours of work at home. And to me, that's the stuff that we need to be cultivating in class. And so it's been tough. It's been lots of learning for me and lots of learning for them, but but like real learning. That was my interview with Noah Daniel, author of Strum and the Wild Turkeys. Big thanks goes to Noah, also to Louise Johnson, author of Behind the Red Door, How Elizabeth Arden's Legacy Inspired My Coming of Age in the Beauty Industry. Find that book, again, wherever you buy fine books. My biggest thanks, as always, though, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.